Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I like our changing world. Nā mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later on, we're going to meet the heavyweights of the periodic table with an episode of the Elemental podcast. But first up, we're going underground. Actually, we're not really going underground. We're just going to visit some labs at the University of Waikato, but the scientists we're going to meet regularly go into caves for their research. Adam Hartland is a Rutherford Discovery Fellow, and he and PhD student Andrew Pearson are working on a Marsden-funded project involving caves and climate change. Here's Adam. I'm a geochemist, which means that I make chemical measurements in natural materials, so rocks, soil, water. My past taken me from uh, the Canterbury Plains and looking at little tiny critters in the groundwater there to studying caves. And I think that there's just something really interesting about these hidden realms or environments which you know you don't really think about they're sort of they're below your feet and so they're kind of cryptic but they're fascinating because of that they sort of hold these secrets that we can go and explore and uncover so do you spend much time underground we go about once a month generally to the Waitomo trying to develop this long long time series of measurements and observations in the caves as they are today it turns out that there's there's limestone almost everywhere you can you can look can pretty much find a cave in an area which is of climatic interest. So they're obviously holding some kind of climate record. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. The whole thing is a climate record, right from the actual cave itself, its formation, its development over time, and then as it gets infilled by either sediments or um, what we call speleothem, um, that builds up a continuous record of, of climate. So that's what a speleotherm is, just the yes, sediments in the cave? it's speleothem. Speleothem. There's, ah. no, there's no R in it. It basically refers to a d- deposit in a cave. So we refer to them as secondary deposits because the, the primary bedrock is dissolved by water passing through. So rainwater passes through, trickles through the soil, picks up CO2 in the soil, and make, that makes the water acidic that water dissolves some of the bedrock and then that water eventually gets down into the cave and deposits the carbonates in the cave, which are the speleothems. It's 99% calcium carbonate and 1% other stuff and it's the 1% that we really care about and are interested in. So you're doing your PhD in this area, so when you you go into a cave to collect things, do you want to explain to me how that works? Yeah, so we usually drive over to Waitomo and climb down into the cave, which at first felt a little bit hairy, <laughs> but actually you, you soon get used to it. You get used to the darkness. 
And then essentially what we do is we measure the drip waters that come through the cave ceiling. In the past we collected the speleothems, of course. Do stalactites and stalagmites come into this? Yeah, they do, yeah. Historically or traditionally people have tended to study stalagmites, which are the ones that grow up from the floor. The ones that might reach the ceiling. They might reach the ceiling, that's a good one, yeah. The project which Andy's working on, they're working on flowstones. Uh, and a flowstone is chemically the same thing, but it grows from a flowing film of water that flows along a surface or along a bank. So you can imagine like a sediment bank in a cave and the water flowing across that and slowly depositing, building up that calcium carbonate. Essentially what we're trying to do is understand what's happening in the soil zone above the cave, the, the ecosystem and how that responds to climate. A lot of people care about and work on you know, how will soils respond to climate change you know, in terms of the potential to release CO2 to the atmosphere, but also there's um, material lost from soil by leaching organic material out of the soil in water. And so this is where the caves sort of come into their own because they're really the only sort of archive which captures that process. As that water passes through the soil, carries the organic material with it, and then it's eventually sort of locked into the rock and preserved in time. So they're like molecular fossils of what's been happening in the soil. So what sort of time frame is recorded in these flows? Well, we're focusing on the past 14,000 years, probably around about 50 years resolution in some of the samples. And this will give us a really good idea of how the climate is driving the loss of organic carbon from the soil, pre-human, of course, by a long way, in New Zealand, which is really unique, especially where I'm from in the Northern Hemisphere. There's quite a big ongoing debate between scientists as to why organic carbon is being increasingly lost from soil, or whether that's a human impact or whether that's an impact of climate change. And New Zealand, in its sort of pristine environments in which we have some of our caves, and ours a unique opportunity to see how this is happening in relation to climate or in relation to vegetation, for example. You've got 800 years of potential impact, and before that it's just nature being nature. That's right. It's absolutely um, clean before that from humans. So that's really important for our project because in the Northern Hemisphere there's a lot of impact from land use change or pollution or even more recently in terms of acid rain in the Northern Hemisphere, which you just don't get here from industrialisation, and that also has an impact on the soil. What are you trying to get out of this research? What are you hoping for? We aim to develop information um, which is, allows us to understand what the climate of our region will do in the short to medium term. So by looking into the past, we'll be able to understand the, the way that the climate is all linked up and coupled so it might be going, it's going to be warmer, it's going to be wetter, or it's going to be drier. But mm. putting some specific numbers on that, or is it just going to be relative? Exactly, putting specific numbers on that. So actually quantifying the amount of rainfall that has changed in the past. For, for example, as we move from the last glacial period into our present interglacial, and how changes in, in Antarctica have affected that. Because... The, the moisture delivery to New Zealand is dominated by this westerly flow of air masses. And that westerly flow, that band of circling wind, is directly influenced by Antarctica. So as the climate of Antarctica has changed and the, and the surrounding ocean, that will have affected New Zealand. And so 
on a sort of regional basis, we can start, start to actually get a, a very specific picture of what's happened to the climate in the past from measurements which are actually done on the land. So that's the kind of one of the things that makes what we do unique as well, is that we're not making measurements from offshore in, you know, in the oceans or um, in the deep south. It's in, in New Zealand where people live. In terms of the climate history, we're filling in a part of the map which is kind of blank at the moment. I'm curious to see one of the flowstones from Waitomo, so we head to the lab. These are examples of flowstones. So you've got a block of epoxy resin with this. It's yeah. quite beautiful. It looks like marbling on the front cover of a book or yeah. a layer cake of some kind. Yeah, exactly. It's, I suppose it's similar to ice cores. It has these sort of layers that get deposited over time. So these samples here, they're from a whole lot of different caves, are they? Yes, we have some from uh, Waitomo, and we also have some from um, on top of Mount Arthur, Kaharangi National Park, and also a few from around Mount Luxmore in Fiordland as well, to real, really capture that latitudinal gradient of New Zealand, which has different temperatures. Yeah, this one's from Nettlebed, which is famous among um, cavers in New Zealand. It's at various times, I believe, held the record for the longest cave in the Southern Hemisphere. We got permission from the Department of Conservation to take these samples. Um, so this particular sample spans the last interglacial period. So it's um, what's called the Eemian, which covers the period of roughly 130,000 years ago to 120,000 years ago. So that was when, in the past, the, the conditions are like today, the most like today. So we live in this period which geologists call an interglacial. Paleoclimate scientists are particularly interested in these interglacial periods because they give us a window into times which are like our present climate state. Where speleothems come into their own is the ability to date them very precisely, which is not something that we are able to do with ice cores as well. So you have to employ different strategies to understand where you are in time. With speleothems, we can use something which is often referred to as absolute dating, which is using uh, ra the radioactive decay of natural um, isotopes of uranium inside the sample. It looks a bit like a cross-section of a tree trunk to me as well. There's quite finely defined lines on it. Some of them are really dark, some of them are quite white. Can you just talk me through some of the big features yeah. before we get down into the detail of the yeah. fine stuff you guys look for? This sort of honey or custardy colour. Um, it's kind of like caramel. We could spend yeah. some time debating yes, the best an that's, analogy. That's right. It, it varies between honey, custard and caramel. But that's pretty much um, organic matter. So that's sort of n the natural hue of the crystal as it contains the organic material. And I think probably as we get to these slightly darker bands in this particular sample we're looking at, um, it could well be that these are silts and clays as well. So the thing about flowstones is that they capture more hydrological pathways. The flow of the water can, can take different routes. And so sometimes you, you're looking at through a, through a flowstone core and you go through a, a section which is nice, clean calcite, which is your speleothem, and then you've got gravels or sands. So, you know, things have changed, something's happening. And, and, and that's kind of cool to see as well because it's just this, this, you know, all that history which you don't see until you, you take the core. So how do you go about interrogating these cores more finely once you're back here in the lab? So what I've spent a lot of time doing was drilling into the speleothem samples. So because they grow upwards, if you just drill down at sort of one millimetre 
resolutions. You can take samples through time and essentially what I would then do is dissolve the powders that I've extracted at those one millimeter intervals and I would use a fluorescence instrument which can tell me about the properties of the organic matter. Next stop, the fluorescence spectrometer room to find out what exactly the fluorescence technique is. Fluorescence happens when a molecule absorbs a photon of light and inside the molecule electrons become excited so they get to a higher energy state and because the molecule has a hard time releasing that energy in other ways it releases it as in the form of a photon so um, effectively it lets light back out again and that process of fluorescence so of the molecules becoming excited and then releasing that light as a photon allows us to understand kind of what they're made of so it gives us a picture into the characteristics of the organic matter so what's in here is there's the light source there's some mirrors the sample goes in here and then what happens is we can measure absorbance of light so that's literally how much light is being lost along the beam absorbance is like a direct measure of concentration this is what we call a cuvette so that just goes into the Put your sample in. into the cell in here Pop it in the machine. Yeah, close the lid so no light can come in from the outside world. And then we hit play and run a program now which steps through a series of what we call excitation steps. Hear it ticking away. You can see that it's sort of building up a picture on the screen. So that's how the organic molecules appear inside the spectrum. Um, and where they appear in, in that optical space tells us what we're, what we're looking at. Okay, so it's a great way of actually visualising what's in that exactly. flow state. Yeah, it's a very visual uh, method, but also it lets us measure how much there is as well. So the red areas are telling us that there's more intense excitation or emission at those particular wavelengths. So you can see this sort of red circle, and that's indicative of humic-like organic matter. So that's the organic matter that you would find in soils predominantly, and also, if you've ever seen a river uh, that look, or a lake, for example, that looks kind of brown, almost like tea, that's the fluorescence wavelength where you would see that. As the speleothem grows, it captures the organic matter as it grows. And, and so we can go back in time, go back you know, thousands of years and get a picture, a window into what was happening in the soil. As well as working with flowstones laid down over many thousands of years in natural caves, Adam is about to begin some experiments, creating his own flowstones in a specially built artificial cave. The artificial cave. This is essentially a, a controlled atmosphere enclosure and it operates using um, a software program which has been developed which allows us to control the concentration of CO2, water vapour and the temperature of the air inside the chamber. So at the moment it's open, so it's clearly not yes, running. That's right. But you can seal it up and create whatever atmosphere you like in there. Exactly right, yeah. So what volumes of water are you going to be doing in there and exactly what will you be doing? So to begin with, we're going to be growing calcite, so growing speleothem in a way which mimics flowstones. So the water will be flowing along an inclined glass plate and the actual volume of water flowing at any one time is quite small, so a few millilitres but that will be coming from a reservoir of, of a few litres worth, which will allow us to run an experiment for a couple of weeks. Um, Could you build stalactites in there? 
Yep, could grow pretty much anything that evolves from a water that contains calcium and CO2. And we can drive it in the other direction, right? So we can look at what happens when you have a high CO2 in the atmosphere and you, and you start to dissolve the, the rocks as well. We can obviously control the valves. You can hear that clip there. And that's the, the chiller unit starts, starts up and we can set the temperature there. So is this aimed for long-term experiments? The first set of experiments, experiments we're going to run will be around two weeks. And what question are you looking at? Growing speleothems in our artificial cave. And we're looking at a specific set of chemistry to do with uh, the metal copper, actually, and how the copper moves from the water into the speleothem. So this sounds like a pretty unique tool to have. It is. It's, it's really unique. We're copying, uh, to some extent, a similar system that was built in Germany. However, the student who was running that system had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and go and switch the valves on to get the CO2 back down to the you know, right level and that sort of thing. So this one takes care of itself. It's a real big step forward. Thanks, Adam. That was Adam Hartland, and he's a geochemist at the University of Waikato. He's also a Rutherford Discovery Fellow. PhD student Andrew Pearson is working with Adam on a Marsden Fast Start project. Koto tato al horihori tene, he hotaka e panaki te putaio, te taio, me te kopapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, it's time to get heavy with episode 9 from the Elemental Podcast. Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and I are celebrating the International Year of the Periodic Table. And this episode, Berkelium and the Synthetic Heavyweights, is a bit of a chemical buffet. We are going to consider a whole 22 elements in this one episode. And the reason that we're going to do that is that these 22 elements sit pretty much at the bottom of the periodic table. They are extraordinarily heavy. They are what we call transuranic elements. That means they come after uranium on the periodic table. They are very unstable. We haven't got a lot of them, and they are all radioactive and turn into something else. Right, so before we take a brief deep dive into the world of the chemical heavyweights, not only had I not heard of a lot of these, but I had no idea of how to even pronounce some of the names. So I whipped around some of my RNZ colleagues, Alan, to see how they went. (laughs) This will be good. Nip. Tinium, Neptunium, Berkelium, Berkelium, Californium, Californium, Einsteinium, Einsteinium, Fermium, Fermium, Mendelevium, Mendelevium, Nobelium, Nobelium, Laurentinium, Laurentium, Rutherfordium, Rutherfordium, Dubnium, Dubnium, Seaborgium, Seaborgium, Borium, Borium, Hassium, Hassium, Darmstadtium, Darmstadtium, Darmstad. Darmstadtium? Darmstadtium. Rowentignium. 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 Rowent. Oh, that, is that the one that gets everyone? Rowentignium. Copernicium. Copernicium. Nihonium. Nihonium. Flerovium. Fluorovium. Moscovium. Moscovium. Livermorium. Livermorium. Tennesis. Tennis. 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 Tennisine. Tennessine. Tennessine. Oganesson. 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 
So as you can see, some of my colleagues rather struggled with some of those names. (laughs) Indeed, yes. (laughs) Probably to do with the fact that some of them are rather obscure. Let's just start at the beginning, and in this list, um, I'd like to start with the first two, Neptunium and Berkelium. Berkelium. Berkelium, yes. I I think it's Berkelium, that's the way I've heard it pronounced, but yes. Okay, tell me about them. Okay, so all of these elements are called the transuranic elements, as we've already said, because they come after uranium. So the first element that comes after uranium is element 93, and that's Neptunium. And then element 94 just happens to be plutonium. I can see a space theme going on there. Indeed you can. So Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. So we're not going to go through all these 22, in case you're worried about that, but um, plutonium is going to get its own show because it's pretty important. Curium, likewise, element 96. And we've already done americium, and so therefore we go from neptunium, which is 93, to berkelium, all the way on 97. Why has it got such an unusual name? Well, it was named after the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which is at University of California, Berkeley, in the USA. And so what we find with a lot of these elements is that they are named somewhat parochially. This one, one of quite a few named after places in the States. So you get berkelium, you get californium, you get americium. Uh, Tennessee, etc., etc., etc. Berkelium was discovered in 1949, and since that time, we've really only been able to make about one gram of berkelium. So it is very, very rare stuff, and uh, the elements that come later than berkelium are even rarer still. The Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, that's a very important sounding name. Was Berkelium the only thing they've discovered? No, no, no. They are sort of the big American lab where they have made a lot of discoveries of these transuranic elements, and so they've actually discovered 14 of these heavy elements there. So that explains a lot of those English and more American-connected names in this bag of heavyweights. Are the Americans the only ones discovering these heavyweight elements? No, indeed. And I talked about parochialism, and uh, that extends to certainly the Russians as well. A lot of the heavier elements were discovered during the Cold War, and so there was <laughs> probably an unfriendly rivalry, I guess, between uh, the Russians and the Americans. So you get a lot of American-named things, you get a lot of Russian-named elements, and more recently the Germans and the Japanese have got into the game as well. So parochialism aside... Is there a convention for naming these heavy elements? Is it a case of first and first served gets the naming rights? Yeah, pretty much. And that's sort of the way that it's basically been with all of the elements, really, whether they be naturally occurring or synthetic. And so obviously there's quite a bit of kudos that goes with uh, naming an element. Sometimes there are false starts, and particularly with the, the last element on the periodic table, element 118, A team at Berkeley thought they'd made it in 1999. Uh, They published that, and then they found out that their lead investigator had been making up the results, and so they had to retract their original supposed discovery of this element. Oops, that's a bit embarrassing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, just a tad, yes. yes. Still, at least they had a good track record before that. Uh, Oh, yes, indeed, yeah, yeah. So just confirming for me, these are all things that have been made in the lab, have existed only in the lab, do not occur in nature. Exactly, yes. And extraordinarily rare. We're talking, in some cases, merely atoms of the particular elements having been made. So what's the point of going to all this effort to make something that is so rare and exists so fleetingly? (laughs) I guess natural human curiosity, I suppose, and really how far we can push nature. We... 
are making new matter, essentially, matter that's never existed as far as we know in the universe before. It's an extraordinary thing to be able to do, and there's an awful, awful lot of money that goes into the equipment for all of this sort of stuff, and that is why there are really only sort of four places in the world that do this sort of science. What's the heaviest element on the periodic table at the moment? And I, I say at the moment because I realise that, you know, people are beavering away trying to find things and you get these little eruptions of, oh gosh, we've just discovered something new. Oh no, we've just super eclipsed you. We found something newer. So what's the heaviest <laughs> one at the moment? So the heaviest element is uh, an element called Oganesson, and that is element 118 that I referred to before. And indeed, they reckon either five or six atoms of this were made. And uh, this was first prepared for real, I guess, back in 2002. And the experiment that they did took about 40 days, and they made about five or six atoms of this stuff. And in contrast to the Cold War days, this was a joint team of Russians and Americans. And there does seem to be a lot more cooperation going on these days in the scientific realm now that the Cold War is over, which is all good. So 2002, they found it. When did it get to earn its place on the periodic table then? Well, what needs to happen in cases like these is that the discovery has to be replicated by one of the other teams working around the world. And so this was replicated in December 2015 as one of a bunch of four new elements, and it was named in 2016, and it was named after a Russian nuclear physicist by the name of Yuri Oganesian, and he is very, very big in the transuranic elements world. And he has the very, very great distinction of being one of only two people who have had elements named after them while they're still alive. And the other one is a guy by the name of Glenn Seaborg, who had Seaborgium named after him, and he was a giant of the American side in the Cold War. That's right. There's a few names of dead people in this grab bag of heavy weights, Rutherfordium, Einsteinium. Indeed. And we, we get people like Copernicus, for example, element 112, which is very, very appropriate because, remember, he was the first person that said that the planets orbit the sun and not the other way around. Who else? Röntgen, the discoverer of X-rays, and X-rays are very, very important in all of uh, this type of stuff. If pushed, I would have to say that Galileo really, really desperately needs to be on there. He's one of the greatest scientists of all time. Is there an upper limit to all of this? Like, how heavy could you go? Is Oganesson going to be it? At the moment, the periodic table is pleasingly full from a symmetry viewpoint. If you have a look at it, it's essentially perfectly symmetrical, and all of the holes which used to be there over the past sort of 20 or 30 years are now full. And at... The next element, 119, we're going to start another period on the periodic table. Remember, those are the horizontal rows on the periodic table. And people are, again, engaged in studies trying to make this stuff. It's anybody's guess, actually, as to how heavy we could go. Nobody really knows. There are some calculations out there that say that when we get to an atomic number of 126, we might find some stability amongst those particular elements, because these heavy elements, they're only around for milliseconds. Oganesian only hangs around for half-lives of sort of milliseconds, so it's there and it's gone. There's also a prediction that if you go as high as an atomic number of 164, then you might also find that those are unusually stable. But you're sticking an awful lot of positive charges in an awfully small area, and we know that light charges repel, so there will be um, a limit to the size of the nucleus somewhere along the way. It can only get so big before it spontaneously flies apart. That's my guess anyway. So people are theorising that we can go up to 160-whatever, and they're poised, f waiting for 119. 
theoretically, could you actually physically make it? Yeah, indeed. I'd say in the next few years, probably somebody will report the synthesis of element 119. I wouldn't be surprised at all. As I say, there are teams very much, I think, in Japan. I think they're really onto this at the moment, trying to make element 119. And what happens is that when they do make a new element, it sort of gets a placeholder name, which is sort of somewhat systematic. And so element 119 would be called ununenium, which is kind of pig Latin for 119. Element 120 would be unbin... <laughs> Let's try that again. Element 120 would be unbinilium, which, uh, again, pig Latin for 120 or 120, etc., etc., etc. God, that's like naming your baby before it's born I and mean, going, well, wait, wait till we meet it to give it its proper name. Unenium, I like it. <laughs> and that was episode nine of the podcast Elemental. And my co-host is chemistry professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. And that's the show for this week. But you'll find the cave science story, as well as all the episodes of Elemental and the Kakapo Files podcasts at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. All of these things are also podcasts available on most apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, you know the drill. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Modi order. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.